There are no ordinary moments, says Dan Millman in this interview with the world-class athlete and first world trampoline champion who's devoted his life to mastery, first in sports and then in life. Dan is the author of the book, which opened the path for many of us, Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And in this dialogue, he talks about a variety of topics, including inspiration, talent, discipline, mastery, the Zen of ordinary life, and his own unique path and teachers, and about his new book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, Life-Enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy. It's been such a gift to dialogue with people we've had on the podcast, and today is just an extra delight because the person we're dialoguing with has been an inspiration for me for actually most of my lifetime. In my misspent youth in Australia, I was very deeply into trampolining and high diving, and one time was, I think, the state champion, national varsity champion. But whatever tricks I was doing, there was always this guy in the United States who was adding an extra somersault or an extra twist and doing these what seemed unbelievable tricks. And the person who was doing these was a actually young man by the name of Dan Millman, who became the first world trampoline champion and subsequently went on to become a world-class gymnast. And Dan has been an inspiration in many ways. When I read his breakout book, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, I discovered that he was not only a, a master athlete, but someone who had also devoted his life to inner work, to contemplative inquiry, and had forged a path that had allowed him to access some deep realizations and offer some profound teachings, and had the good fortune of meeting him and inviting him for dinner to my house. And uh, the house at the time had a beautiful deck overlooking the San Francisco Bay Area, and there was a railing on the deck, and Dan immediately walked to the railing and did a one-armed handstand. If you know anything about gymnastics, you realize that a one-armed handstand is an incredibly difficult trick, let alone when it's over a cliff 20 feet down to the ground. So that, that was my, my introduction to Dan in person. And I have just followed with delight his career and his work and his teaching and inspiration since. And most recently, just read his most recent book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, in which he talks about, which is his full autobiography, a number of his books have blended autobiographical fact with fiction as a way of teaching, his teaching medium. But this is his straight autobiography, and it was fascinating to read and to follow this trajectory of someone who had mastered the highest level of athletic prowess 
then gone on to a spiritual mastery and to read about the teachers he'd worked with, two of them whom I found out I'd studied with myself. So here was another connection. And I was moved by his work. And I should just mention his several books include not only The Way of the Peaceful Warrior and not only the most recent Peaceful Heart Warrior Spirit, but also a number of others, most notably to me, The Hidden School and No Ordinary Moments. And I was so moved by his recent book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, that I wrote this blurb for it. This is the powerful story of a man who has devoted his life to mastery, first in sports where he became a world-class athlete, but then in the far more challenging arena of life itself, where he has been a lifelong student and a longtime teacher, practicing and perhaps mastering what would traditionally be called the Zen of ordinariness. So that was my distillation or the epitome of what I saw in Dan's life and this book. And there's a lot in that blurb, so maybe we can come back to it, unpack some of it. Dan, welcome. It's a delight to have this conversation with you. Well, thank you, Roger. It's also a pleasure for me. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Well, fantastic. There's so much we can talk about. I personally would love to talk a lot about trampolining, but I don't think that's where we should go. I I would love to get you guys talking about trampolining. (laughs) Uh, You know, the question that comes up for me most, Dan, as I think about you and your life is, you've you've achieved such levels of mastery in, in so many domains. And the question for, that comes up for me is, what is it that pulls you or compels you? What's the deepest source of your inspiration? Well, that's always remained a mystery to me. I could make theories about it. But I, I can say in very brief, Roger, that trampolining, most people think of it as a backyard game and play, recreation where people do tricks. But for me, I believe on a deeper level, it was a way to ascend. And I think my inspiration from the very beginning, I was small in stature, younger than most of my classmates, as I explained in the memoir. And so I wanted to develop, you know, the powers of Superman or Peter Pan who inspired me. I wanted to be able to fly. But I think that represented something about transcending or ascending, rising above. And so trampoline was a practical way to, at least for a few seconds, to achieve that when I realized I wasn't going to be able to take off and soar through the air unassisted. So there was more to it than, you know, just our sports background and that we love jumping and and flipping. But it did begin a contemplation for me because when I was a young athlete and a coach at Stanford University, I wondered, could we create actually more talent, not just take whatever talent an athlete had and try to develop that level, but what was talent? I asked myself. And it was rather than doing research-based work, it was more intuitive for me. But my experience told me that talent, the ability to learn faster and easier and rise to higher levels and a higher potential, seemed to me about 80% could be developed. Maybe 20% was innate in terms of our body type, our physiology, maybe our hardwiring. But I, I boiled down sports talent. And it would apply to music or any physical skill training would be a matter of strength or muscular control, stamina, suppleness or flexibility, but also sensitivity, elements like coordination, rhythm, timing, balance, reflex speed. And so I asked myself, 
well, is there a way to train all these things? Rather than working on the skills of gymnastics, for example, in the first year athletes, we worked on developing that foundation of talent so they could learn faster and so on. And my theories did work out in practice. In doing this, the team started out when I began coaching at the bottom of our conference, the absolute basement. And in three and a half years, Stanford was one of the top three teams in the U.S. And I also coached the top U.S. Olympians. So my theories did work in practice and I might still be coaching today, an honorable body, mind, spirit type of profession. But I realized that the skills I learned, the flips, and you can relate to this, didn't really help me practically when I went out on a date or when I got married when I had children, when I dealt with financial challenges, career decisions, and even knowing myself, maybe it helped a little bit in that arena. But I started asking bigger questions just to provide a context. And those questions led me around the world and studying with the four primary mentors I described over several decades. And it led to this approach to living I call the peaceful warrior's way, which is really about all of us. There's a lot in what you said, but one of the several points which intrigues me is your idea that maybe 80% of our capacities are something we can cultivate and develop. If you look at the research, most, yeah, it's surprising. Most of the breakdowns in the research, genetic and so forth, say, yeah, it's about 50% genetics for an awful lot of talents, 50%, you know, environment sure. cultivation. And yet I've also always wondered about something you're pointing to, and that is, have we underestimated our capacity for cultivating ourselves? Well, it's the one thing in our control, cultivating that. We, we know genetically if someone has their parents had died young or they had a heart attack or someone's relatives had cancer. We do know that we can trigger those genes or keep them more quiet by our lifestyle. We have some wiggle room. Now, you're the doctor. You would know more about that than I would from your research, but that's what I understand from reading. So I think whether it's 50%, 80%, 70%, we do have some control over making the right effort. You know, it struck me that we can't control the outcomes in our life. Nobody can guarantee us success, including ourselves, but we can control the efforts we make over time. And to me, that increases the odds of getting our desired outcomes. So in terms of keeping those genes quiet or triggering them, enhancing our genetic potential, a lot of it is about what we do over time. That's why I stopped asking so much how, can, how to develop talent for sport and more about how do we develop talent for living for those challenges of everyday life. And that's the arena in which I focused on since then. True. You you really did make a major switch from, from athletics to life. Mm. Uh, and that's what your life has been about. And I want to go back to the original question I started with, which was what has driven or called you? Because you answered in terms of possible compensation for the past, which most of us do for most of our lives. To, mm -hmm. And hopefully we get beyond that. But, but there's also what you didn't speak to. And I, I know you did say it was a mystery. And it's true. At bottom, our deepest motives are a mystery. And perhaps they're not ours. Our motives aren't ours, but come to us. But what is it that's called you? Speak to that, because you do have a calling. Well, expanding on that idea of the desire to ascend, which led me to trampoline, to transcend. I have friends who are here in life to be happy, 
to amuse themselves, distract themselves, find something engaging to do with their life that is meaningful to them. All great. Some of us, though, are touched to, we're just, we have the urge to serve, to influence other people, to reach out. We're called as teachers of one kind or another, if only by our example. And that, I think, is at the heart of my motivation. I didn't know it consciously for a long time. In fact, it took me quite some time and going through a stage of frustration when I began to suspect in some fundamental way I was asleep and kind of dreaming my way through life, but I didn't know yet how to wake up. So that primed me for an interest in life's bigger picture. And not everyone is called to that, but it was part of my nature, hardwiring, if you will. And obviously you were as well. And John and probably uh, Heidi and Vanessa who work with you, we all are attracted to this. What's the big picture here? What's really going on? Who am I? And that to me is a rabbit hole. Uh, I prefer to look at what do I do action-based rather than finding out who we are. One fundamental element of this approach to living, I call the peaceful warrior's way, is self-knowledge. As we know, it was written over the Oracle at Delphi, the Temple of Athena in ancient Greece, know thyself. All spiritual traditions are about reflecting and understanding oneself realistically, whether it's Jungian, understanding our shadow side, our full humanity, It's a humbling experience, and we can talk about that as well, of course, if you like. But if we don't know ourselves, and you have to test yourself against the world. I don't know what college students really know themselves. It took me at least 10 years after graduating college to gain some element of self-knowledge in a challenging relationship I had at the time and so on. And if we don't know ourselves, we end up making the right choice for the wrong person, the one we thought we were. And how many people have taken on a career or marriage and realized that's not me who just got married? And I had that experience, as I expressed in the memoir, about starting to get those inklings of self-knowledge. And since then, I've had my nose pretty much rubbed in it for 20 years, a couple of decades. Yeah, I've had the, the privilege of getting a whole year, your memoir, before uh, it's been published. And so I agreed I couldn't let go. I couldn't let the big cat out of the bag, as it were. It's really good. And it's really compelling. And I love biographies and spiritual biographies, especially. One of the things that maybe you take for granted because it's just you, but at some stage, you developed a lot of discipline. You know, you don't become a world-class athlete by sitting on your butt and having good genes. And I noticed when you started talking about your spiritual teachers and work, you that was a given. You, okay, I'm going to have to give up this. I'm going to have to do this. That, and that never seemed to be overwhelming challenge for you. Although, although it was a challenge, but you knew about discipline and working hard and repetition through practice to cultivate whatever that is we're trying to cultivate. And that's been one of my big sticks for quite a while now is the idea of integral practice, working on the body, the mind, the individual psychology, the soul work, and the spiritual work. Really putting that out there is and, and working on that as if your life depended on it and as if your life mattered. I, I really see a kindred spirit, a courageous spirit. I do appreciate that. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate your words. And this whole question of discipline is probably universal. Many people are interested. How can I become more disciplined and empower my will and so on? And again, some of it's hardwired, I believe. I don't take credit for it. Like I have such a strong character. I was able to discipline myself, whereas other people aren't. I don't believe that for a moment. I know my weaknesses and my humanity. And 
I've seen what other people are capable of, some of my gymnastics teammates and others in everyday life. We all know, I'm sure it's been cited before in your program or will be, but you know the old marshmallow experiment where some children are given one marshmallow in a plate in front of them, uh, sitting around tables. And the experimenter says, now, if you can wait and not eat that marshmallow until I come back in the room, you'll get two marshmallows instead, or you can eat it right now. It's your choice. You want this one, or do you want to wait and get two? And apparently from this study, if I'm not incorrect, the children who waited, some of them ate the marshmallow right away as soon as they left the room. Others just waited and they got two marshmallows. The significance of that is some of these children, whether it's hardwiring or early training, I don't know, but you know, nature and nurture. However, those who waited, they did a follow-up years later, and they tended to do better in school, in life, and so on. So there is that question of whether we're just, some of us are hardwired to learn. But the fact that I did trampoline and then gymnastics, I learned that you need to exert effort over time, that you fail many times. Roger knows this. We fail again and again until we learn a new move. So failure was nothing to us. It was simply a stepping stone. So I learned that early on. No one taught it to me. I learned it through my experience. And that's the best way to learn, as we know. But since then, I got more sophisticated. I wanted to read you just a brief quote. I have, I think, in the new book and in some of my other books, too. To progress toward your goals, choose one of the following methods. First, the first method is very popular. It's find a way to quiet your mind, create empowering beliefs, raise your self-esteem and practice positive self-talk to find your focus and affirm your power to free your emotions and visualize positive outcomes so that you can develop the confidence to generate the courage, to find the determination, to make the commitment, to feel sufficiently motivated to do whatever it is you need to do. And the second method, which I recommend is you could just do it because life always comes down to that. Do you do it or not? But everyone's saying, yes, but how can I motivate myself to do it? And we've all taken out the trash or gone to work or school when we weren't feeling like it. We just did it. And that became my master metaphor. In other words, at a very young age, I began to realize that that's how I could approach things. When I was afraid, which I was many times on the trampoline, or when I was tired, I took care of myself. But when I felt I was ready, I just did it. And I failed. And then I did it again. And I failed. I did it again. And I failed. I learned this lesson again when I was 60 years old. That's 15 years ago. I had just turned 60. And I wanted to climb, sneak up the Golden Gate Bridge to the top, up climbing that one of the towers. But that was right soon after 9-11. My wife said, I don't think that's a good idea, Dan. So instead, I decided to learn to ride a unicycle. And a friend of mine loaned me his unicycle. Anybody who's tried it, very humbling. And he told me to try in a tennis court because it's nice level ground early in the mornings. And I could get a death grip on the chain link fence while I was trying to stay aboard this thing. After the first week, I could careen forward about six pedals before it went out from under me. After the second week, coming back every day, I could do maybe 12 pedals before it went out. And by the end of the third week, I was doing figure eights on the unicycle around the court. And I learned two things from that. I learned that everything is difficult until it becomes easy. And the second thing I learned 
was that there were days that everything seemed to fall apart. I was worse than I was three days before that. It seemed to be devolving. But I also noticed that after those so-called bad days, I usually had a breakthrough. And I realized I was actually, the learning was happening, transferring from my front brain to my back brain, whatever metaphor we use from neuropsychology, it was shifting. And that's why my body and mind were confused. And that's when the learning was happening. And that can happen in a relationship. You have a crisis. If you stay with it and persist through it, don't quit. That's when you can break through to deeper levels of learning. And I learned that you don't just learn something. You learn it deeper and deeper and deeper. So those are some of the ideas I learned through training, through physical experiences. And of course, the four mentors mentioned in the book. Yeah. Do you feel there might be, I mean, because not everybody's going to do the work. Not everybody's going to want to be motivated and strive to achieve greatness or transcendence or any of that stuff. And I'm wondering if there's not a, some of us have a divine discontent. Now we're just not, it's not enough to be just what we are, you know? And I was never a very great athlete, even a good athlete. If I worked really hard, I could be good enough that everybody appreciated me as part being part of the team and everything, but I just didn't want to be bad. So I, I got it. I'm not quite as smart. I'm not quite as fast. I'm not quite as anything as the rest of these people. Or maybe that was my projection, but that's what I thought. So I knew I'm going to have to work really hard if I were going to do it. And I'd seen myself when I hadn't worked hard. And the difference was not okay. So for me, it became not okay not to practice. And my life practice keeps evolving, you know, as time goes on and I change and it just keeps when I lived in Argentina once and we were we gave us this old rancho to live in and there are all these weeds and all this stuff. And we were trying to cut it. We couldn't. And this old Indian guy showed up and he looked like he was three quarters drunk. And he was like, give me this. And he sharpened the scythe and he just went cleared out and just within, you know, a couple of minutes what we've been trying hours to get rid of. And he just said, you've got to sharpen the scythe. You know, you have to sharpen the sword. You have to sharpen the mind. And in those moments when we are sharpened and it doesn't work, I think that's the payoff. You know, we're, we're, we feel at one with ourselves, with our purpose, with God, with spirit, with the universe. We are right there in that moment. But you had to work your butt off to achieve that effortless miracle. Well, wow, that's profound. I, I really appreciate your, your sharing that personal experience. I, I would totally agree with that. It takes a lot of effort to finally do things effortlessly. Picasso said, I can paint like a master when I was a child. It took me years to be able to paint like a child again to reawaken that initial innocence and so on. So yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. Dan, you've been an interesting mix in as someone who has found a number of teachers and you list four in your book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. And you've also had a contrarian streak. <laughs> At least I think you've had a contrarian streak. It's like you don't take things for granted. You don't take teachers for granted. You forge your own unique path. Well, those two work together for you. Yes, I, I've remained, I, I suppose, Roger, because I chose an individual sport. I loved basketball when I was young, but everyone else grew up and I didn't. I stayed short. So <laughs> that wasn't going to work out well, and, and nor were certain other sports. So I gravitated toward acrobatics and gymnastics. And it's an individual sport. Your success or failure doesn't depend on someone else. It's all on you. So I, I took responsibility, but... There are, there's a shadow side to being an individualist, being very centered, 
but also can mean self-centered because I was always focused on my progress, my goals. And that was a major area of change. I was really into self-improvement when I was young. I learned all kinds of skills, martial arts and magic and speed reading and memory courses. I was really into self-improvement. But one day it struck me really later in life that no matter how much I improved myself, only one person benefited. And that's important. Each of us is a cell on planet Earth. The healthier we are, the better we are, the better it is for the planet. But to me, it was more meaningful if I could reach out to people and influence them and maybe enhance their lives with reminders or my example, whatever ways I could find. And that brings me to something that I was reminded of in your wonderful essay that I may have mentioned earlier that I I read several times, Roger. I think you'll relate to it. And it's a story I tell about how I was in the gym recovering from my shattered right leg, as I describe in my first book. And it was coming along really well. In fact, I was swinging around the high bar and I did one of the better dismounts I'd done in a long time, a full twisting double somersault. And I stuck my landing. Most people know that's a good thing in gymnastics. And I went, yes. you know. And then I just figured that was a good time to quit workout. So I ripped off my sweatshirt threw it in my workout bag, and we were walking down the hallway. As the story I tell, Socrates said, you know, that last move you did, Dan, was really sloppy. And I went, what are you talking about, Sock? Was you know, best, really a good dismount. He said, oh, I'm not talking about your dismount. I'm talking about the way you took off your sweatshirt and put it in your bag. Mm. And he was reminding me once again that I was treating one moment as special, swinging around the bar, and another moment as ordinary but that there are no ordinary moments. And then he added something. I actually got this line into the Peaceful Warrior movie that they made based on the book. He said, Dan, the difference between us is you practice gymnastics. I practice everything. It took me a while to to kind of grasp that. What what do you mean he practiced everything? Was he on some never-ending self-improvement program? But his point was, most of us do things. We do the dishes. We do our homework. We do our work. But When you practice something, immediately the meaning changes. In practicing, we're aiming to refine it, to improve it. How many of us practice walking across a room or practice signing our name to make it better than we did last time? As soon as you practice whatever you're doing, eating, sleeping, walking, making love, it doesn't matter. If you practice it to refine or improve, it brings you into a deeper sense of self-absorption Life, daily life becomes a kind of meditation, or at least more moments are spent in that absorption. Chik Minsai, you know, he called it flow, or we call it the zone, but that's how to achieve it. Someone wrote to me and said, how can I be in the present moment? I try to remember to be in the present. So don't remind yourself to be in the present, just get into whatever you're doing fully and practice it. And so That was one story I wanted to tell. Maybe I'll get to the other one, which really relates to the essay you wrote. Mm. Well, there's so much in what you said, Dan. I want to make sure we don't lose a couple of key points there. One was, I think you were emphasizing the difference between practicing a certain skill and practicing life in its fullness each moment or bringing full awareness and the richness of the fullest richness we can to each moment. 
which is a big distinction. That's that's the kind of transition I see you having made between your mastering trampolining and gymnastics to working towards mastering life, the greatest of all art, as several people have said. And the other thing you, you brought out was that self-mastery is wonderful, but there can be more. There can be self-mastery in the service of service. And the implication I take from it is that we always need a, la- a goal larger than ourselves if we live fully and be truly satisfied. And you're pointing towards this, and that is also a transition I see in your life. You went from you know, mastery of an individual sport towards you know, your own self-mastery doing all these courses you described. And again, I resonate having been on a self-improvement kick, but recognizing again that there's more. And the more seems to involve the recognition of our interconnection, interdependence, and that service is one of the most satisfying and beautiful of all the things we can do with a life. I think you'll agree that one of the most spiritual films, movies ever made is disguised cleverly as a rom-com. It's called Groundhog Day. <laughs> and you're laughing at recognition because I, I expect you saw it. Uh, and those few people who haven't seen it, it's not really a spoiler. This self-centered and kind of obnoxious newscaster, he gets stuck in a time loop and he, he has to come back every, no matter what happens to him, he wakes up at 6 a.m. the next morning over and over. Someone once calculated it was probably 10,000 years of this, but he kept trying to exploit it. He robbed a a bank truck. He made out with with a pretty lady because he learned all about her. She didn't remember it, but he knew all about her now. He did all these things. And finally, he became so disillusioned with getting all this stuff because he remembered what was going on day to day. No one else did. So he lived the same day, you know, hundreds of thousands of times. Finally, where, do, where does he end up? He tries to kill himself 50, 100 times. Nothing works. He tries it, and then he wakes up at 6 a.m. the next morning. And then when there's nothing left, he begins to educate himself, goes to medical school and learns piano and so on. But finally, all that's left, the only game in town is service. He finally discovers that the greatest sense, what we really want in life isn't just happiness, some giddy feeling all the time. What we're really looking for is a sense of meaning and direction and purpose and connection with ourselves, with other people, and with maybe the transcendent. And so in service, we do that. It's a way to connect with other people. Even if we're independently wealthy, we need to do something to interact. I knew a lady who had, she was in the entertainment industry, And she had lots of money. She never needed to work, but she worked in a small bookstore because she loved books and to help people to find the books that they wanted. She loved recommending them. So she found a way to connect with other people. And I think deep down, those of us who stop looking for just personal happiness and find little ways to make a big difference for other people with a kind word, picking up a little litter and putting it in the trash can or out for a walk, These little things can be very big in the eyes of spirit, so to speak. So I think service, as you pointed out in your wonderful essay, I think it's central to our lives, to the meaning and joy in our lives. Beautifully said, Dan. And it seems as though service is one practice in which it is both the means for our own fulfillment and growth and maturity 
and it is the end in itself. Absolutely. Don't you think, I mean, and, and I know more about your life than you know about mine because I've been reading your life, but obviously self-mastery seems like a very noble and appropriate thing for a young man to do. And I say man, because I think self-mastery may be more of a masculine virtue that can be and should be cultivated by women also, but it's part of that warrior ethos. And you achieved a lot as a very young man, your goals, it's quite amazing. But at a certain point, did the, the maturation, did the, the nut begin to crack open and you realize that, hey, what I'm learning, this has become my path of service. And if I hadn't, you know, obsessed as this courageous young warrior on self-mastery, I would never be in the point where I have gifts to give to my people at this point. And it grew in. And if you didn't grow into that, it would just evolve into a lifetime of narcissism. Aren't I great? But in your case, and in healthy development, it does shift. And I don't know if you can tell a young man that it's about service when they're just trying to create the structure. Ramana Maharshi used to say, I want to give people what they want. So eventually they may want what I want to give them. So when I was teaching gymnastics, if somebody just wanted to learn a handstand, I'll help them with that. But if they said, how does this connect to life? I was very happy to share my perspectives on that as well. So I, I, would, I would totally agree. You don't tell somebody just where your head is, at, my head is at 75, you meet people where they are and help them to do what they do. Now, I think some of us are familiar with the old Sri Nigrasardatta said, you know, neti, neti, neti in the Hindu tradition, not this, not this, not this. And my life, I would describe as a process of disillusion. And disillusion sounds negative, but of course, it also means a freeing from illusion. And I saw that doing flips wasn't going to make me happy. It didn't bring anything stable. You know, often I tell people, the best thing about going to college is you find out it doesn't make you happy. There are people who never went to college. And for years later, they go, if only I'd gone to college, I'd be happy. If only I had a better job, I'd be happy. If only I made more money, I'd be happy. If only I got more respect, I'd be happy. If only I traveled more, I'd be happy. If only I retired, I'd be happy. And it goes on and on until they realize, not this, not this, not this, until they realize that there is no such thing as future happiness because it's always in the future. We're either happy now or not. But the key to understanding this idea, in my view, is that happiness is not just a good feeling that descends on us. It's a practice. We can actually practice happiness in everyday life. How do we do that? Everyone knows what it feels like to be happy. We've all had moments of being really happy. Now, how do we behave in those moments? Aren't we more present, more engaged, more enthusiastic, kinder when we're feeling happy? Yes, most of us would say, well, yeah, when I'm feeling happy, I am like that. Then we practice those things. We behave like it. We bring it into life, happiness as a way to radiate and practice in life. I think it was Joseph Campbell who said, we have to learn to go with joy among the sorrows of the world. And many people go, well, that, that sounds counterintuitive. Why would you want to be joyful about? I said, no, it's not joyful about the sorrows. It's to go with joy among the sorrows. Because walking around with a long face and a scowl 
because there are problems in the world we all acknowledge, it doesn't help anybody. But if we can bring a little more and radiate a little more happiness as a practice in everyday life, I think we become a part of the, the solution and a positive force while we live. Thank you, Dan. Your description of Joseph Campbell's uh, saying opened it up for me in a new way. So I appreciate that. And and yes, I, I spent a lot of my life thinking, oh, if people are suffering, I have to be serious. And, and em- empathy means feeling pain with them. And you know, when I, and then I was in hospital for a while and I found, you know, the people who came around, the ones who were happy and cheerful, even though I was pain, <laughs> made me feel a lot better. <laughs> so it was, it was very, very clear. So, yeah, so thank, thank you for that. You know, there's a story that came to mind about service. I just want to tell because it, it came up and it touch, touched me as it came up, as it has so many times. You, I'm sure, will be familiar with the teacher, Adyashanti, whose wonderful work, uh, he was a Zen, first a Zen student, but, you know, woke beyond a single tradition as a, really a master teacher. And he tells a beautiful story about his own teacher, a woman who was an unknown, quite unknown. She would just put some zafus out in her, in her living room each Sunday and people would come and sit with her or not. <laughs> and in her later life, she had a stroke and was unable to continue teaching. So what did she do? She comes in regularly to Ajashanti's office and stuffs envelopes as a way of service. It's like, wow, that is a beautiful example of humble service. Yes, that is so true. You know, I used to project a humbler persona, let's say, until I came across a quote by Golda Meir. She said, stop acting so humble. You're not that great. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and it reminds me of a wonderful Jewish story. The rabbi felt he was being too proud. So he went into the temple and he put his prayer shawl on and he beat his chest and said, I'm nothing and I'm nobody. I'm nothing and I'm nobody. And the cantor came in. He was so inspired with the show of humility with the rabbi. He sat next to him with his shawl on and said, I'm nothing and I'm nobody. And there they were. Then the janitor, he came in and he was so inspired by seeing the rabbi and the cantor. He, he sat down next to them and did the same thing. I'm nothing and I'm nobody. So the cantor looks over at him, then nudges the rabbi and says, look who thinks he's nothing and nobody. <laughs> So it's a paradox, this whole idea of humble service. But I agree. We we serve however we can in whatever moment. You know, you and I corresponded about this, Roger, earlier. Sometimes I think I should go to a soup kitchen here in Brooklyn, New York, and serve. And you pointed out that could be good to get in touch with the people on that level, the street, and and people who really are very appreciative and in need of that kind of service. And yet I said to myself, but many people want to and can do that, but I can do what I do best. So we all find our own ways, as you pointed out in your essay. And that reminds me, if I may, just one other story of me and Socrates. We're walking down Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley, California, And at that time, this was the late 60s, the Vietnam War was raging. There were starving children, oppressed peoples. I was seeing posters on the wall about all these problems in the world. And I turned to him and I said, Socrates, you know, I feel kind of guilty or selfish. You're having me do all this inner work, doing these meditations and self-analysis and self-massage and all these self-oriented things. Shouldn't I be more active like my friends who were protesting and marching? And he kept walking. 
But suddenly he stopped and turned to me and said, Dan, see if you can slap me on the cheek. I challenge you. I'll give you $5 if you can slap me on the cheek. I didn't understand. I said, did you hear what I was just saying? He said, come on, go for it. So I bobbed and I weaved a little bit. Then I took a swing as fast as I could and found myself on the floor, on the ground, in a rather painful wrist lock. And as he let me back to my feet, he said, you notice a little leverage can be very effective? And I went, yeah, you know, I noticed Socrates shaking my wrist. And he said, well, you want to help people. You want to serve a useful purpose. That's great. Do what your heart tells you. But at the same time, do not neglect the work on yourself and the contemplative work to know yourself so you'll develop the wisdom to know how to exert the right leverage at the right place at the right time. And that's what I've been seeking to do ever since. Yeah, and in my experience as being an activist and involved in so many things, I was a singer-songwriter, protest singer back in the day, and I saw this happen to a lot of my friends. I was giving myself, trying to give away, and I think I was doing that because I didn't feel very good about myself. So if I could do something noble and help out in whatever way I can, maybe that will make up for the great deficit I feel inside. But what happened is we got burned out. You know, if you don't have a way to reconnect with source, on an ongoing way. And sometimes service can be that when you get into those flow states, they're extremely nurturing and your ego and all that seems to be totally out of the way and it's just coming through you. But if you don't have, and I'm definitely make this an, when I didn't have, I became very burnout. I became very cynical and in despair. And I had to learn, maybe I'm just a super sensitive sissy where I need to feel God's presence on a pretty regular basis, or I just don't function very well. So I think it was that emphasis on service, but without a way yet of reconnecting or connecting with source that was a big, well, thinking about it now was a big shift in my life. That's when I went to the wilderness and a lot of things that followed. So, yeah, so nurturing. Roger, I'll bet you have some things to say about that. Well, nothing is coming up at the moment, so uh, I'm happy to pass. Is there anything else you want to say about it, Dan? Well, it did remind me, the point of that story was that it seems to answer the paradox or that big question of, should we work on ourselves? But isn't all that navel-gazing, as people call it, who are a bit cynical, who haven't experienced the value of it? Or should we be out there doing things in society and being an activist? And it's not an either-or. As John implied, we need to do both to recharge ourselves, connect to spirit, whatever that means to us in our own way, to remember the bigger picture. And then from our heart, move into whatever form of service we care to, whether it's volunteering. There was a cynical young man I met, and I recommended he consider working at a hospice for a while as a volunteer. And he contacted me six months later and said, I've been doing that. It changed my life. In his case, it was a story I I remember because it was a very good outcome. So I think it's a matter of, as John said from his own experience, serving, but also doing the work on ourselves. God helps those who help themselves. And, you know, people make fun of self-help teachers. Maybe, you you know, that, that old story about somebody goes into a big box bookstore and goes to the information booth and says, can you point me out to the self-help section? And they go, well, I could, but that would defeat the purpose. You know, <laughs> Um, so, so the point is people make fun of self-help and some of it's not very good. I understand more rah-rah type things, but the first self-help teachers were Lao Tzu, Chuang Tzu, Epictetus, the Stoics, you know, Socrates, Plato. 
the transcendentalist writers, they were all self-help teachers. They were helping people to help themselves, offering reminders and guidelines about life. And so that's in our own way what we do for those around us. And of course, teaching by our example is the main thing. Yeah. And one of the things you're pointing to, Dan, is that these are actually not opposites. And in contemporary psychological terms, we think of them as polarities, that is, as two poles which can seem opposite, but actually they're complementary and interacting. And the the stronger one becomes, the more it has the potential of infusing and catalyzing the other in a dialectic backward and forward. Yeah. And the other other thing you're pointing to is the practice in which is best articulated in the yogic tradition of karma yoga, the yoga of using our work and action as the means for our own practice and growth and awakening and learning and healing. And the beauty of karma yoga is, and I'm just articulating in different words or in the traditions words, what you've been saying, the beauty of that is that we use life itself for our learning and we go into ourselves to go more effectively out into the world and we go out into the world in order to go deeper into ourselves and it's a beautiful cycle of it's a virtuous cycle of self-reinforcing cycle and that i think has been the key to a lot of the work you've done and a lot of the a lot of your teaching in various ways seems to focus on this very very beautifully for which i thank you thank you yeah well, Ram Das, by the way, said it. I loved his, his way of putting it. It was quite a raconteur. He said, we can be lost in cosmic bliss and still be responsible for remembering our zip code. And that's, that's why I recommend people keep their head in the clouds, but their feet on the ground, connecting heaven and earth, so to speak. Join us for part two of the dialogue with Dan Millman, the world-class athlete and explorer of life. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.